Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome, valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist. We also stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to excel in industry. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist or our program, the Cheeky Scientist Association, you can go to phdsgethired.com. Just enter your name and email address and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry. What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry, you can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at phdsgethired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. Today's show is about overcoming challenges, overcoming anxiety to achieve your goals, especially your career goals, your job search goals. We have a great show lined up for you. We have a very special guest, Ruben Gonzalez, a four-time Olympian. We will, we will be talking about his book, The Courage to Succeed. Uh, it's a great book. You have to read it because it talks about all the psychological challenges, the situational challenges you're likely facing right now with trying to change careers, with trying to become essentially a new person. Right? For a lot of you listening, you're trying to transform yourself from an academic to a business professional. This is no different than trying to transform yourself from somebody who you know, maybe had worked in low-level businesses before to become a high-performing athlete, right? Uh, we're going to talk to, to Ruben about his strategies for overcoming the anxiety associated with uh, changing your path, setting large goals, and ultimately achieving them. So very excited to have on Ruben. Uh, we have several other guests on. We're going to go through our Show Me the Data section at the beginning here very, very shortly. Uh, we're going to bring on Asia Isbel, who is an MBA working at Takeda Pharmaceuticals, has experience at Shire and Baxter and Amgen, over 10 years experience at some of the biggest companies in industry. She'll be talking about how you can overcome your maybe imposter syndrome, your anxiety that you have to see yourself as a business professional, to communicate, speak the language of business, to be able to, to realize that as a PhD, you've learned highly technical things. You've had to learn at the highest level. You can apply your biggest transferable skill, which is the ability to learn quickly in industry to be successful. I decided to have her on too. <laughs> Jeanette's coming on for the show me the data section. We always talk about the data first. It lays the groundwork. And let's face it, we're PhDs, so there's not data to back up why this is important. We just don't care. 
All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the show me the data section. I have Jeanette to help me because she's a lot better at uh, digging into the data than I am. She's going to keep me on track. So what are we looking at here? The, the title of this first figure is Depression and Other Common Mental Disorders, Global Health Estimates. Sounds kind of deep, right? You're probably thinking, I don't have a mental disorder. That's okay. What we're trying to show here is that anxiety is normal worldwide. No matter what country or culture you're from, people deal with this. And if you're dealing with it, it's okay. Very often when it comes to anxiety and depression, et cetera, the more you try to ignore it, the worse it can be. So Jeanette, what else can we take away from, from this figure? That's, it's looking at everything from Western Pacific to the uh, Southeast Asia to, to Africa to Europe, et cetera. What's the key takeaway here? Yeah, I think you nailed it. It's that like a lot of people are experiencing anxiety. It's not just you if you're anxious about things. That's everybody experiences that. And I'll add that this uh, figure is just people who've been diagnosed with these anxiety disorders. So it's actually even higher, right? Because a lot of people go without a diagnosis. And so those numbers are actually even higher, people experiencing anxiety in their day-to-day -day life. Yeah, and why is this important? Because anxiety affects your performance. Why do we care about anxiety? So there's like this level of anxiety that can heighten performance, like when you get like the jitters and you're ready and you, you get, you, it sharpens your mental focus. We don't have a problem with that as PhDs. As PhDs, though, we take it to like the next level. Our anxiety is through the roof, and it starts to perfect our performance. We can handle a lot of anxiety compared to the average person, but no matter who you are, how strong you think you are, you can go past the level of helping your performance, and it can actually hurt it quite a bit. You make worse decisions, right? Uh, you're, you lash out at people. Uh, your own biology, you can get like a, you know, a facial tick. Like sometimes when I'm super stressed, Maya will just like have a mind of its own a little bit. I shouldn't probably be telling you this, but it'll just like twitch just, just a little bit, right? So these things affect you. And, and I think that's, you know, that's the why behind this. I don't know. Uh, Jeanette, have you ever experienced an anxious moment when you were getting your PhD? Yeah, it's like the whole entire thing. I think I was anxious the whole time. I don't think there was ever a moment that I wasn't. But I think it's about, we'll get, we'll get to it a bit later, but it's about learning to channel and deal with and recognize that anxiety as just a thing. Right. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing you're experiencing mm. and then to go from there. Yeah. And I think depersonalizing it like that can, can be powerful. Um, you don't want to uh, ignore it, but depersonalizing it can help. And, and we'll talk to, to Ruben about, you know, some ways to kind of overcome, you know, the anxiety, the, the fear of what's going to happen, right? What am I going to do with my career? Did I waste all this time getting my PhD? Uh, let me just be honest for a second. This is something that I used to be like, Oh, anxiety, like get over yourself. Like everybody has anxiety, like boo-hoo. I'm just being blunt. Like it was just, and I think different personality types maybe are less sensitive, but life has a way of teaching lessons. And I was just like, this is, I used to hear about people get having panic attacks or experiencing depression. I'm like, well, they're just not mentally tough. Like they're just weak. And, you know, that might sound very, very harsh, but this is something, you know, 10 years ago, you don't have the life experiences that humble you to say, hey, this is a real thing. And nobody thinks it's real or cares until they've gone through it. My last year of graduate school, I started having legit panic attacks. And it's so funny to say that because I used to think panic attack, like this is, this is clearly fake. But it was just like an instant happened. I had too much stress going on, difficult relationship with my PI. I didn't know what I was going to do in my career. You know, as highly driven people like PhDs like we are, we're, we're very motivated. And when we realized that, I don't know, our entire purpose or career path has been a mistake and we we go from thinking we're right on track and we're even ahead of the curve to 
we're way behind. It's tough to deal with. It's like an identity crisis. And so I started to have like, it was like this moment it happened again, just like I snapped my fingers. Suddenly heart rate is through the roof. I feel like I can't breathe. I legit went to the emergency room and I'm like, I'm having a heart attack. And I think the nurse was like, was like, no, you're fine. Uh, you're just stressed out and having a panic attack. And, um, it was a, it was a moment of clarity because once you lose control, you have to lose control. Like you have to go from moderate pain to actual severe pain before you're willing to change. At least I did. And I think once you realize that this stuff matters and you start to dig into what your triggers are or what the, the red flags are that you're a little bit more stressed out than usual, that it's real power because then you can do something about it. Then you can plan ahead, you can prepare and you can center yourself uh, before things get too, too intense. Next figure, the title is Workplace Survey, American Psychological Association, Harris Interactive. And so it's looking at work stress here. So the focus obviously is for all of you to get into a career that matters. A lot of you, you're really in a career. You might be in an academic career, but you're in a career one way or another. Um, the way this figure breaks down is that there's a percentage that strongly agree and there's a percentage that just agree. And then there's two different dates, two different times, right? So 2012, 2011, uh, the first set of bar graphs the title is typically feel tense or stressed out during the workday. 2012 is 41%, 2011 is 36%, so it went up. The second set of bar graphs is have resources to manage work stress. Uh, 2012, 58% said yes. 2011, 54% said yes. So what, what are the key takeaways here relevant to uh, work stress, Jeanette? Yeah, so this is, I think, similar to that anxiety one we showed above where, first of all, just realizing that this is really common, right? Most people are feeling stressed and they're, a lot of people don't have the ability to manage that stress, which leads to this anxious state, right? If your workplace is so stressful, but you don't have the ability to manage that stress, I think that's when you enter this anxiety place where you're not exactly sure what to do. Um, and that's, that's sort of what I took away from this, you know, and also that this doesn't stop with your PhD. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to finish your PhD and get a job and magically never have workplace stress again. So yes. I think dealing with this and really figuring out how you can handle the anxiety and the stress now will serve you forever. Yeah. And, you know, while stress might be increasing, there's also more resources to manage stress. No matter what work environment you're in, like you said, you're going to experience stress. Management is key, though. Stress is never going to go away. You don't even want stress to go away. You need stress to perform at a higher level. And this is something we'll talk to Ruben about. The key for every individual is finding out what that level is for you and how you manage it individually. There's things you can learn, right? Like quantitatively, you look at something with a large sample size, et cetera. But also you're, you know, in one sense, you're an N of one. It's just you. You have to figure out what works for you. And I think that's, that's really important. Okay, Jeanette, are you ready for this figure? This is I am. A I am. I'm ready. Figure. So Jeanette <laughs> I'm and I were talking. I'm settled in my chair. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Jim and I were talking before the show and we're like, okay, this is a, this is a t intense figure, but we wanted to dig through it because high, high level, very deep studies have been done, of course, on anxiety. I mean, the cost, you know, in terms of performance, in terms of just, uh, you know, the healthcare costs are, are really high for a lot of these things and they affect people on a severe level, but also on a practical day-to-day -day level. That's why we wanted to dig into it. And the question we're asking here is, okay, there's resources, but what are the internal resources that I have or that I can improve upon to help me? when it comes to stress. And before that, what are the different types of stress? The article title here is Understanding the Dark and Bright Sides of Anxiety 
a theory of workplace anxiety. The, the studies by Bonnie, Hayden Chang, and Julie McCarthy, um, we'll post a link. It's to uh, NCBI, an NCBI article, an article on PubMed. Um, so it says here in the subtitle, the goal of the TWA is to model the complex nature of work, workplace anxiety, uh, thus identifying the underlying, I love when they say thus, thus identifying the underlying processes and boundary conditions that determine how and when both dispositional and situational workplace anxiety can exert negative and positive effects on job performance. So those are really the four factors we're looking at. Dispositional, which is more internal, right? And then situational, which is more external anxiety. So anxiety from your own emotions, for example, versus anxiety from like just the stress of on the job things like maybe there's drama in the workplace. It's not really associated with you, but you're exposed to it. Um, and then what are the negative and positive effects? How do people respond positively to this? Um, what's, the, what's the negative route? Um, so maybe, Jeanette, you can help me here. What is the difference between dispositional and situational? And then why is it important to understand that the same person can go through both of these types of stressors? Yeah, great. So dispositional is, like it said, trait-based. So it's different for everyone. It's sort of like your, what is your baseline anxiety level, ah. right? So are you, we've all met people who go through our lives and they're just like, so chill, right? And then there's me people <laughs> who are more like me, who are a bit like, they're like a lot going on all the time, right? Yeah. And so you just have to recognize within yourself, what is your own personal anxiety level? And then how is that going to affect your, your work? That yeah. would be like the dispositional, um, anxiety. And then the situational one is different situations, different circumstances you find yourself in. So let's say the examples they give in this paper are like a job interview or a review or a business meeting, you know, or a sales presentation. So all these different kinds of situations will stress different people out differently. Yeah. And, and again, let's be real. For most of you watching this as a PhD, you're a little bit type A, however you want to classify it. Yeah, there's outliers. Maybe you're more relaxed in some areas, but you can't be, you can't say, you know what? I want to be completely different. I don't, I want to see myself as type B. I want to see myself as relaxed, not caring, not going to work. A big part of this is just accepting like this is, I'm, I'm strong at this level, high, very high, intensely high, whatever it is. You also have, you have to accept that so you can find what your threshold is, where your performance isn't affected. Like I, you know, one of the biggest moments of relief that I've ever had is like when I finally said, this is just the way that I am. Like, I'm not ever going to be like the person, you know, and I like Jeanette's little posture change. Where she's like, I'm never going to be the chill person like this, right? <laughs> I'm never going to be the, the totally relaxed person. I'm always going to be driven. I'm always going to have goals, et cetera. That's how all of you are. You're going to be driven, okay? That's just accept it. That's why you went to get a PhD. You want to have an impact. It's not bad to be driven. Um, you're going to be a little bit, you're going to be a little bit, uh, you're going to rev at a different uh, tempo than most people. That's okay. Accept that, but figure out what, the tempo is for your optimal performance. That's the key. And realize that that's, that's the dispositional internal part, but also realize that what happens around you situationally can affect that. So if we go through this figure, right, and we have these red circles here on ability, motivation, EI, why do those matter and how do they help for both dispositional stress and for situational stress? Yeah, so let's start with the dispositional um, anxiety one. And so when you're experiencing this high level of anxiety, it 
can lead to emotional exhaustion. So you can see that top box is emotional exhaustion. So if you're not regulating that experience, if you're just completely overwhelmed with your anxiety and you don't know what to do with it, yes. it's exhausting and you won't be able to perform at your highest level, right? Yes. But the other side of this, the flip side is that if you do have the ability to regulate that yourself, to self-regulate and recognize those emotions and then do something about it, that's yes. not just suffer, um, you can actually improve your job performance, right? And in order to get there, you need those things that are circled in red. You need specific, you need to uh, trust your ability to have the motivation and to have high level of emotional intelligence. Absolutely. And we're going to bring Ruben on here in a couple of minutes. I just want to say, you know, look at those three things. These are the three things you can come back to as a PhD all the time. Ability. You know you have ability. You're capable. You're able to learn things. Look back to your past when you didn't know something and then you, through work, learned it. That's ability. That can center you. Just do the work. That's a big part of it, right? Motivation. Go back to your reason why. Why did you start doing this in the first place? Why did you start your job search? Why did you go down this path in your career? That's important. Connect with your motivation. We tend to forget that. And we just, a lot of us just execute, execute, execute. You have to go back to your why. Okay. And then finally, emotional intelligence. There's a lot. If you, if you're, for those of you that are behavioral psychologists, some people think EI doesn't even exist. It's just intelligence, like your IQ, whatever. This is good news either way. You're all incredibly intelligent. So just use your mind to be self-aware, to ask yourself different questions. We know the power of questions as, uh, you know, because a lot of you are in, you know, most of you are in STEM, you're scientists, et cetera. Ask the right questions, gain some self-awareness, say, what am I not seeing? And this will help you. So those will all help you and they'll help you overcome the stress, whether it's dispositional or situational. Before we bring Ruben on, I'm going to bring on Mary to ask the final question here and take us through this final figure with Jeanette. Hi, Mary. Hello. All right. Hello, Jeanette. Hey, Mary. I know you're excited about this figure, so why don't you tell us, tell us about it and you and Jeanette can talk it through. Um, I, I'm interested in this figure because I, I know, we, you know we all have anxiety in different forms, but it's really nice to see that there's data showing how your workplace can influence your ability to manage that. And I think that's what this figure is about. So. Jeanette, can you present Yeah, it? yeah, of course. The, so the, yeah. the figure on the left side of the screen, the first one, that is looking at the level of emotional exhaustion that employees experienced in a low anxiety situation or a high anxiety situation, depending on how high of quality the interactions with their coworkers were. Hmm. So if you were in a place where you had coworkers that you didn't really interact with or you didn't click with and you have um, a high workplace anxiety, that actually means that you're going to be at a higher level of emotional exhaustion. Mm. But if you have great coworkers, you chat, they're supportive, you've got this great community going on, it actually, you can be in that same exact level of anxiety, but it's less exhausting mm. because you found this great community, this great culture to share, sort of share that burden with, right? Yes. Perfect. Yeah. So, and, and I'm just going to say the title here because I, I know that we're going to, Cheney's giving me the, the cue of like, hey, this is going to be audio only. Um, so are anxious workers less productive workers? It depends on the quality of social exchange. So like both Mary and just, Jeanette just talked about, your community, your culture really matters. And you can be under more stress and handle it better if you have social connections. And, and that's what that first figure shows. So Mary, I'll let you start with figure two. Okay, I think the figure two on the right uh, addresses the um, leadership and the role that plays in the anxiety. Mm. Jeanette? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it does. So 
I mean, we think about our coworkers having an impact, like it makes it fun to work there, but everybody knows that it comes down to your boss is dictates a lot of times how your vibe is, right? So we, a lot of us as PhDs know what it's like to have a negative relationship with a PI, with a supervisor. Um, and so this figure is sort of the data behind that. And so if you are in, this one looks at job performance, which is on the Y axis, and then emotional exhaustion, which is on the X axis. And that de depends on the level of, um, looked at the interaction between the employee and the supervisor, right? Supervisor, yeah. So when there was a high emotional exhaustion, so you have a very stressful job and you have a lot of anxiety in that job. If you don't have a good uh, relationship with your supervisor, your job performance drops dramatically. That's that lower line. Um, that's the job performance is right between two and a half and two. Um, but if you have a good relationship with your supervisor, that job performance drops way up to about four, no matter what the emotional exhaustion level is. So even if your job is easy or hard, your performance is high if you have a good supervisor. So for me, the big takeaway for this, this figure, this paper, is that you have the ability to go out and find a place to work, right? You're not forced into work anywhere. So go do informational interviews and figure out what the culture is like at different places. And yeah. is it gonna vibe with you? meet with the coworkers when you go in for your interview it's totally up to you to decide if that's a place that's going to be supportive for you and and let me just be real here i think i think what's important here is i'm not really impressed with the left figure like i, I know that culture and the social interactions are important and they can help a little bit but if the supervisor is awful it does not matter like the if you have a good supervisor relationship your anxiety emotional exhaustion level is so much lower right? And your performance is so much higher. So I think that is really important for you to know. So yeah, you want to make sure you fit in with the culture, et cetera. But a big part of that culture is leadership. So make sure the person that, you know, ask who are you going to be reporting to, right? Who are you going to be working with directly? Who's going to be giving you, you know, telling you what to do in a sense, right? And how are they going to do it? Are they going to approach you like a colleague or like a lot of us have experienced, are they going to be like the fire breathing PI who just can expect you to do anything and work for 18 hours and just add to your stress? Very, very important. And, and I can add too that you can learn about this in your informational interviews before you even meet this person you're reporting to by just asking about the team dynamics and how the interactions are. Um, so that's something you can, you can definitely look into. Perfect. Thank you both. Thank you, Jeanette. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mary. We're going to jump right into our first guest, Ruben Gonzalez. I'm going to do a quick introduction here. And uh, again, really excited to have Ruben on. He is a four-time Olympian, has an incredible story to share. Uh, you're, if you can see the screen, I'm going to go through a little intro here of Ruben. I'm going to show his LinkedIn profile too, so you can connect with him there. He is a four-time Olympian, award-winning keynote speaker, and best-selling author of The Courage to Succeed. I have a copy of this book here. Incredible book. Go check it out. Go check it out. The Courage to Succeed. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fast read but the amount of information you get is a lot. And I was just impressed on the back of it, the people that have recommended this book, Stephen Covey, he wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, Ken Blanchard wrote The One Minute Manager. These are, these are high quality, like these are books that have sold incredible amounts from business speakers who have been in the industry for decades. Um, Zig Ziglar uh, wrote uh, Read It Carefully and Take It Seriously. Jim Rohn, the absolute truth about what it takes to succeed. Brian Tracy, right? All these names you've heard. Just really, really impressive. Um, probably the best lineup I've ever, possibly ever seen in terms of 
uh, high-level business professionals endorsing a book. Um, he is the first person ever to compete in four Winter Olympics in four different decades. Incredible. Spoken to over 100 of the Fortune 500 companies since 2002. Appeared on ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, CNN, and the New York Times, Success Magazine, Time, Business Week, and Forbes. Featured in three chapters of Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles. Jack Canfield wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. So definitely check out the success principles there too. Um, his story takes people's excuses away. He was a bench warmer in school sports. And then when he was 21, which is really late to get involved in training for any sport, uh, in the, just about any sport in the Olympics, uh, that's when he started training. Uh, four years and a few broken bones later, he made it uh, as an Olympian. He went on to compete in the Winter Olympic Olympics again in four different decades. Um, so really excited to talk to him. Uh, to talk to Ruben, who's going to join us real quick after I show his LinkedIn profile. So with all of you, we talk about LinkedIn profiles a lot. Look how amazing his uh, headline banner is. We always tell all of you that, hey, you can put text in here. You can put whatever you want in your banner. Look what he's done here. This is, this is one of the best uh, banners I've ever seen and uh, really, really great job. It's on point with his professional brand. You can connect with him on LinkedIn. You can go to thelugeman.com. That is clearly the, uh, the, the sport he's an Olympian in, the luge. And without further ado, I'm going to bring on Ruben. How are you, Ruben? Let me make sure. Hey, how you're are ready. you? Isaiah? Good. Really good to see you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's good to be here. Exciting. You got a, <clears throat> excuse me, you got a great team. Oh my gosh. They, they, you need to give them a raise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I'll bet they're cheering right now. <laughs> Shaney's like, you're Maybe. here. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but yeah, the team was incredible, and I really appreciate you working so well with them. Your book's amazing. You're, you're a highly motivational person. And I just wanted to say for all of you watching, why are we bringing Ruben on is because performing at the highest level, no matter whether it's as a PhD or in the Olympics, it requires you to overcome a lot of internal battles and a lot of external struggles. And so Ruben, I kind of wanted to start, you know, there with you because you had to have experienced a lot of uncertainty, a lot of what we call imposter syndrome when you first decided that, hey, I'm 21, which is really late to get involved, right, in, in the luge and the Olympics. What was going through your mind during that time? Why did you decide to, to become an uh, Olympian? Why did you decide to take that path? And then what were some of the initial, I guess, uh, challenges you faced kind of technically like oh i have to learn how to do this sport and then emotionally as in like i could fail and, and uh there's going to be a lot of anxiety and i'm at the work hard etc all right great uh when i was 10 years old i saw the olympics for the first time on tv and i was hooked and what drew me to the olympians it wasn't the athletic side it was their character i thought wow this is a group of people that have a dream they're willing to fight and train for years and years and years with no guarantees of success and they make it. I thought, man, you got to be so strong inside to, to do that. I put them up on a pedestal and mm -hmm. I just want to be like them. It was never about the medals for me. It was about, I want to be one of those guys, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I was not a great athlete. I'm a slowpoke, okay? <laughs> so I, I was always the last kid picked for PE all my life. So I didn't believe it was possible. So I didn't take any action for 10 years, 11 years. Wow. Then when I was 21 years old, I'm watching the 1984 Sarajevo Winter Olympic Games. I see Scott Hamilton, the figure skater. He was 18 years old then. He weighed like 110 pounds soaking wet, and he wins the gold medal. Man, he gave me hope, right? I thought, man, if that little guy can do it, I can too. I'm going to be in the next Olympics no matter what. It's a done deal. I just got to find a sport. All of a sudden, I had belief. 
Before mm. I had desire, no belief, no action. Now I got belief, I'm ready to take action, right? And mm. so <clears throat> I went to the library and my nickname in high school was Bulldog. So I was very perseverant, I'm very tenacious, right? Yeah. And, uh, I get this big book about the Olympics, I have to find a sport. There's all these East Germans are already good at my sport now, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> and so I'm looking through the list of the summer sports. It took me five minutes to realize you gotta be a super athlete, there's no way. And I got a little down. And then as I was looking through the list of the winter sports, the analytical side of my brain kicked in. I thought, I'm about to put together a plan for the next four years. It probably would make sense to base the plan on my strengths. My strengths, perseverance. I'm bulldog. So I thought, I've got to find a sport with a lot of broken bones, right? A, a, a sport that's so <laughs> tough, so, so hard, there'd be a lot of quitters, right? Yeah. And only I won't quit. I'm going to ride that attrition rate all the way to the top. I'm not quitting. Nice. And so I had it down to ski jump, bobsled, and luge. I lived in Houston, Texas, okay? i never seen snow before. I mean, hot, humid Houston. That's how we do the Winter Olympics. So, so what, right? Ski jump, forget it. You know, that would have been suicide. <laughs> uh, bobsled, where are you going to find three other nuts in Houston? What is bobsled? I mean, you got to go to Jamaica for that, right? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I know those guys, all right? We're always ribbing each other. That's awesome. Then left the luge. I'd never seen the luge on TV at that point in my life. If I'd have seen it, I don't think I'd have done it. <laughs> but I had a little picture of a guy on a luge. I thought, that's the one for me. I didn't even know where the track was. Okay, so PhDs, I, I, I was pretty, you know, I didn't know much. I just knew yeah. that I wanted, I knew the destination. I knew where my ticket was, uh, where I wanted to end up with my ticket. All right? Yes. And so if you want something badly enough and you're willing to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes, it's just a matter of time. All right, that's just something I believe, and it's, and it's served me well. I didn't even know where the track was. <laughs> I wrote Sports Illustrated a letter. I figured they ought to know. It's their job to know. <laughs> and they actually wrote back. They said Lake Placid, New York. That's where the track is. I call them up on the phone. I said, I'm an athlete here in Houston. I want to learn how to luge. So yeah. I'm in the Olympics in four years, right? Um, will you help me? So you have to be willing to ask for help, right? Yeah. It's already done what you want to do, and they can be your mentor. They can be your coach. And so – at first, the guy laughed, right? He said, how old are you? I said, 21. He says, no way, man. I mean, we start them off when they're 10 years old. By now, you have 10 years experience. No way. I wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, I just thought hanging up is not an option. I, gotta, I just started talking to the guy, making friends. <laughs> so yeah. Think of something. I happened to tell him I was born in Argentina. He did a 180. He says, if you'll go for Argentina, we'll train you. And I said, why? A minute ago, you weren't going to train me at all. He said, well, the sport of luge is in danger of getting kicked out of the Olympics because we're not global enough. It's the U.S., Canada, and a handful of, of oh, European wow. countries. We're recruiting. So if you'll go for Argentina, we'll train you. You'll travel with us. We'll even lend you a sled the first year. Uh, the, we're going to have to compress 10 years of learning into two years. You're going to get hurt a lot, okay? Wow. Uh, but because the last two years, you have to get on the World Cup circuit competing against the best in the world because you're earning World Cup points to try to be on the – right before the Olympics, you have to be top 50 in the world or else it doesn't matter where you are, you're not going. So will you go for Argentina? And I thought about it for about a nanosecond. I thought, man, I'll go for Pakistan. I don't care. I mean, I don't even care what sport. I just want to go to the Olympics. See, the luge was the vehicle. The Olympics was the dream. You focus on the dream because that's what's going to give you the energy to bust through those obstacles. And you just find a vehicle that, that – that, that can take you there. So I love football, I love soccer, uh, I, I love other sports, but I'm lousy at them, right? So that, that yes. was not going to be a good vehicle for me. 
this is amazing. Let me, I'm just trying to write notes because we're going through so many things that are crucial. So if you're listening closely, let me just rewind a second and, and break down what you said, Ruben, because this is fascinating. So many key points covered. The first is reference points. So he said that his desire turned into a belief because his reference points changed. He saw Scott Hamilton. He saw somebody else who did it before like him. This is huge, right? So for all of you, if you're like, I don't know if I can be a business professional or whatever you're trying to do, find somebody else like you who's done it before. That's crucial, okay? Um, also, not taking no for an answer. We talk a lot about follow-up. A lot of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Notice how Ruben could not care less about how uncomfortable the other person was. <laughs> He'll just keep following up. That's crucial. You're polite, professional, et cetera, but you don't want to be concerned about, you know, you hear a no, you think that's the end of it. Don't take no for an answer. That's a huge thing. Lateness doesn't matter. A lot of you are PhDs. You're, you know, you're maybe five, 10 years past where your friends were when they got their first industry job. It's not too late. You know, Ruben was, you know, uh, 10 years past when a lot of people started training for it. Didn't matter. The last thing, vehicle. So, so, you know, time, uh, the, the right opportunity matters. And so you want to take your strengths and line those up. Like he said, he loves soccer, all these different things. He would have done anything, but he had this opportunity. And this is why, you know, if you're searching, maybe you want to work in XYZ position at XYZ company. If you don't find the perfect fit, but there's this other great opportunity where you can still live out what you want to live out as a business professional, et cetera, latch onto that vehicle and ride it. Don't miss it because it's not the exact thing. See that opportunity. So, I just want to jump in, Ruben. That was great. A lot of a lot yeah. of great insights there. So, I want to talk more about the the, the factors. So, you you told you, you talked about your your path during what you've talked about so far. Were were there any fears, when any anxiety, things you had to go through during that? Because you make it sound like I just did this, duck, 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 and no, I no. I got that far. I the lose is brutal. Okay, uh, if you start as a ten year old. You're going to be a junior till you're 19 years old. And so you're going from a lower start. And so they have 10 years to slowly uh, teach you the fundamentals, right? The basics, because you have to be a master of the fundamentals to be good at anything. Mm. And so you have time. And so they start you off. Most loose tracks have 16, 15, 16 curves. And you're going, depending which track, 75 to 95 miles an hour. Pulling six G's on some of the curves, by the way. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And so... When you're alive. A little kid, when they start you off, uh, let's say in uh, Park City, Utah, the, the track in, in, in uh, Salt Lake City, they put you on curve 12, and you're going about 20 miles an hour, and you crash, 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 crash. Finally, you figure it out. As soon as you do, coach moves you up a couple of curves, right? Now you're going 30. Oh, my God, 30 miles an hour, right? And you crash, 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 and they move you. You literally crash your way to the top. <laughs> takes about 100 runs to make it to the top. And hopefully you don't get hurt, right? You see, you have to learn. But the hardest thing is, let's say you're on curve seven and you make a mistake. Well, you don't know, right? Because we don't have that space. We haven't developed that spatial acuity. We don't know where we are in space. And so we didn't even know we've made a mistake. So you're late out of seven, but you don't know. So you're not going to be later out of eight. And then you're going to crash on nine. And you don't even know why you crashed. It's because you made a mistake on seven. And so it takes a couple of years for your brain to learn that. Whenever I'm trying something new, I always tell myself, I got to. I, I got to train my brain. I got to train my brain, right? Uh, that's just because once I trained, man, when I, when I, I learned how to uh, snowboard when I was 50, and I knew it was going to take about seven to 10 days of crashing and burning, and then finally the brain's going to figure it out, and it's like riding a bike. And so I just keep telling them that that just keeps me going. I just know that all I'm doing is training my brain. I'm learning how to pair, pair motor, right, where you have a parasail and the motor on your back, right? Well, 
learning how to control. The first thing they teach you is how to control that sale, and it's totally counterintuitive. It's really, but the whole time I'm telling myself, I'm just trying, I'm gonna stick it out because my brain's learning. I'm just gonna figure it out. One day, pow, it's done, right? So you gotta be willing to do that. The first two years, they just pushed me super fast, and I'm breaking bones. I mean, I broke my foot twice, my knee, my elbow, my hand, my thumb, couple ribs. My neck's a chiropractor's dream because you're pulling six Gs. I mean, your head's like a maraca on that loose leg. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a physical, right? Yeah. Then uh, you said this word. Oh, this, did you coin this imposter syndrome or is that? No, no, no. <laughs> That's no? been around. Yeah, it's been around. It's okay. a, yeah, in behavioral psychology, it's something that, people, right, they feel like an imposter and, and when they go into like a Right. Okay, so now I'm at a World Cup race, right? Because I'm going to have to race for the next two years because they're going to tally up all those points so to see whether I make it. Now, imagine you've been driving. You just got a driver's – you got your driver's permit, okay? You're a 16-year-old kid, and you're, fi- and you're finally to the point where you're not hitting the curve all the time. You can actually make a, a, a right-hand turn without the back wheels of the car hitting, and you're feeling so proud. Now they put you in Indy 500, and you're in a room with Al Unser, Mario Andretti, and a bunch of icons. You feel like you don't belong. I felt like I couldn't look at them in the eye. I, I had all this mental thing telling me, man – what the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I mean, I, this is ridiculous, but I knew I would just put my head down. No, I just gotta, you know, I just gotta, I just focus on those points. I gotta get another world cup point. I gotta get another one. I gotta get another one. And I just focused on that. And at the time to make it even worse, the Germans, they totally dominate the sport. They've won 80% of the medals in the last 50 years. Okay. Total domination. Okay. Imagine if, you know, the, the Denver Broncos had won, you know, even the last 10 80%. years Super Bowls. They changed the rules, right? They'd say yeah. you can't play at altitude or whatever. They come up with something. So the Germans are the best, right? I'm already, I won't even talk to the guys that are at the bottom of the pack because to me they're, they're icons, right? I have this imposter syndrome going on. And to make it worse, I'll go say hello to one of the Germans, right? Hey, Hans, how you doing? Nothing. It's like if I don't exist. It's like if I'm invisible. Nothing. No – so that made me feel like an ant, right, on top of that. And it was like a confirmation that's right, buddy, you are nothing. And so I compete for two years. I made the Calgary Olympics in 88, and then I come back, and I'm going for Albertville in 1992, so I'm still competing. Two years after my first Olympics, it was like a memo went out, right? All of a sudden, all the Germans, they're nice all of a sudden. Hey, Gonzalez, Speedy Gonzalez, how are you? And I got pissed, right? I said, what's up with you guys? I've been nice to you for six years, and all of a sudden, I'm Speedy Gonzalez. He says, come on, Ruben, we have to give you the talk, right? The talk. They all sat with me. They said, look, we've been doing this. We do this for life. We commit. Commitment was the key, right? We commit for life. We started, some of us started when we were five years old. We became the best in our town, best in our region, best in our country. We made the national team, but we're so, we have so much depth in the German national team that we're lucky if we make two Olympics. And, and after that, we're going to be coaches. We're going to be coaches for life, right? Because this is what we do. And we're sick and tired of seeing these small countries come. They do one Olympics and then they disappear. You know what we call them? We call them Olympic tourists because they don't really care about the sport. But yeah. this is two years after your first one. You're obviously going for Albertville. Whether you make it or not, it doesn't matter. All that matters is you're showing respect to the sport. So now we can show respect to you. Let me just jump in because just fascinating. So a couple of things to make this highly practical for everybody listening. He's talking about imposter syndrome. What, he, what Ruben did during that time when he felt like an imposter, he said that he, 
he basically, he said he put his head down and went back in and focused on the point. Really, he just focused on the process. And so when we say trust the process, it's not like you're just blindly trusting whatever, but you're focusing on the process that you know works. So for those of you, if you've had a lot of rejections for jobs, you know, you're hitting a career dead end, focus on the process of what it takes to change your career to hit that goal, whatever your goal is, personal, professional, focus on the process during those times when you feel like you don't belong because it'll turn you inward to the process that's going to take you forward instead of focusing on why you may not belong, et cetera. Also commitment. We've talked a lot about commitment. People, you know, the, the, the Germans in this story are just like the employers. They want to know that you are committed to being a business professional. You're not a tourist. You're not just somebody like an academic who wants to be a professor who's just like trying things out in business, et cetera. That commitment is important for anybody. You want to crack into any new field, right? Whether it's the, the luge or a career, you have to show that co commitment. And that's what shows people that you, um, you're for real. And I think a lot of us hold back because we don't want to come on too strong. But when it comes to commitment, you, you want to you show up all the yeah. time, show them you're committed. Yeah. And you know, I'm still competing. I'm 56. I'm, I'm still sliding. I'm going for Beijing 2022, right? When I make that one, and coaches say, man, you're sliding better than ever, right? Uh, which they got me, but I'm training differently now because I'm older, right? So they have me doing all this yoga and stuff. They said, your starts are awful, you know, because you're <laughs> not even, you know, you can't get down and paddle. And we need one more mile an hour before curve one, and that's going to translate the whole way down. You'll be fine. But now it's the top 35 in the world. They keep making it harder. But so, but what I am going to have to do to be promoted right, from a four-time Olympian to a five-time Olympian is totally different. So what did I do? I asked the coaches, I asked the experts, what do I need to do to get promoted? And they laid out a game plan because they're the experts, right? I'm the soldier. I'm just good at finding a good general that I can follow. And so I tell people, I'm, I'm actually, uh, you probably figured out I'm in a hotel room. I'm, I'm in Dallas. I'm speaking for the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank in a couple hours. Awesome. And, and some of those guys want to be promoted, right? And so I ask them, look, guys, all you need to do is ask your boss, what do I need to do to get promoted? Just give me a game plan. Just say, just ask him that mm -hmm. if you're, if you're genuine, right. Uh, and you're willing to do what he says, right. <laughs> but that'll put you on top of the list because they're now they, at least they know, right. And can I meet with you once a week, or once a month, at least, you know, I need to make sure that I'm on track. Right. I don't want to wait six months or a year. And then you tell me, Oh no, you screwed up six months ago. You kind of went off on a tangent. No, Right? At the end of every luge run, we get to the bottom, we pick up walkie-talkie, we talk to coaches. There's usually a couple of coaches up on the track wherever we're having problems, and, and they tell us, right? And yeah. then we go up to the top and we do it again. Sometimes if we have time, we'll walk to that, to that spot and we'll watch a couple of Italians or a couple of Germans coming by, and they'll say, look, you started steering here, they, they started over here, so you need to change that a little bit. Okay, cool, now you got a little bit of a visual. Then when we get home, worst part of the day, we got to watch the videos. Oh, man, now you see how really lousy you are, right? But it's another level of analysis. Now you're actually seeing it, right? And, and then at night you do visualization, right? Visualize runs. And we don't just visualize the perfect run. Before taking a run, right? Before uh, taking a, a practice run or a race run, we visualize the perfect run. But at the hotel room, we visualize escape routes on every curve, contingency plans. It, what am I going to do if I'm late into curve one? What am I going to do if I'm early into curve one? What am I going to do if I hit the, the, uh, the left wall? What am I going to do if I have hit the right wall? So, uh, you know, if this happens, then I'm going to do this, right? And so you have That's a awesome. plan. Anything that could happen, and, and, and that gives you confidence because you know you can handle it.
Yeah, and I think you know that's an entire field of uh, psychology right now. It's called defensive pessimism. So if you're liking what you're hearing, you have to. It's not bad to think about these contingency plans because what you're doing is you're preparing, so nothing throws you off your game. This is very important for interviewing, right? What are all the things that can go wrong during a site visit? You, you want to plan ahead, and I, and I love what Ruben said about asking for help. Ask for advice. Say, what do I need to do to get promoted? I love that question. I, I want to ask you at least two more questions. I'm going to have Mary come on and ask you one of these. The two are, what are the two types of courage you need to develop to succeed in these goals? And then what is the one quality all successful people have? I'll say the last one for Mary. The, the first one I want to ask you here. So the two types of courage that you talk a lot about, what are those two types? Sure. Uh the name of the book, right? The Courage to Succeed. It's not about my courage to succeed. It's about the courage to succeed, right? And so the two types are you got to have the guts to get started. Sooner or later, you got to stop talking about it and get in there and do it, right? Yes. And everything's tough at the beginning because you got no skills. And so you have to give yourself time to learn the skills, and then you use the skills to reach the goal. And mm -hmm. so uh, you have to have the courage to not quit, right? Courage to get started, courage to not quit. Courage to get started comes from belief, right? Courage to not quit comes from your desire. If you want something badly enough, ain't nothing going to make you quit, right? Yeah. And so the, the classic example, and everybody's heard it, your house is burning down. You're not going in there to, you know, to, to bring your big screen TV out. But if your baby's in there, you'll run through burning walls, right? So what yeah. changed? Well, your desire for saving your kid's life is a lot higher than your desire for saving your big screen TV. It'll yeah. make you do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. Wow. So and again, I... Run. And you, you touched on it earlier, get in touch with your why. Um, yeah, always, you know, why, why, why? Those reference points matter. Yeah. Yeah. Write down your goal. I mean, I, before I'll turn on my, before I can check my emails in the morning, I have to write down my goal. That's just a rule, right? Write it down though, okay? Because I know what it is. It's Beijing 2022. That's all, right? It doesn't have to be a dissertation. But by writing it down, the act of writing it down is an act of commitment that drives it into the subconscious mind better than just saying, yeah, yeah, I know, I'm going to Beijing. That's awesome. All right, so we have Mary on here. Mary, I wanted you to ask the, the, the final question here with Ruben. Okay, can I, I'm going to change the question if yeah. that's okay, because I think there's something, hi Ruben, nice to see you. Um, there's something that, that we don't know, yet know about you, and this was your process of writing your first book and getting it published. And I remember hearing a story when you, were, when you were asking people to give endorsements, you were doing some reaching out and you had to reach out to a lot of people. And so this is like cold calling when PhDs are looking for industry positions. We have to get in touch with people we don't know, but that we are really eager to, to learn from. So can you, can you tell us a bit about this, um, the Jack yeah, Canfield? Sure. Oh, Jack Canfield. Thanks. Because I, I could have gone... So, oh, or someone else. No, no, no. That's good. You, you, you reeled me in. So... Um, I don't know if I showed you a, pic, a, a video when we spoke in my office, but it's covered with books. I'm sure like every PhD is listening to this. I mean, you know, I, I'm a, I was chemistry, biology, double major, okay, Houston Baptist University. Um, my parents wanted me to be a doctor, and it wasn't in my heart, right? And the grades showed. I'm saving lives by not being a doctor, okay? You don't want me operating on you. <laughs> but anyways, I have uh, – when I, right before the Salt Lake City Olympics, this little kid in my neighborhood asked me to be his show and tell project in school. And so when I came back from the Olympics, I took the sled, the, the Olympic torch, the helmet. I thought, okay, show and tell, right? I'm finally going to win a medal in something. I mean, no prisoners. I'm going to win show and tell. Principal takes me to the cafeteria. There's 200 kids sitting there. He's, he said, you got 45 minutes. Have at it. They turned it into an assembly. But they didn't tell me. 
okay? I don't look like an introvert, guys, but I am a, I'm an introvert, okay? You put me in a networking meeting, I'm the guy that's, that's leaning against the wall, okay? I, that's the real me. I turn it on for this. I turn it on when I go on stage, but I'm a shy guy, quiet guy, okay? I spoke, they asked me to, somebody heard in my church that, that, uh, that, that I'm a speaker. I said, hey, would you go talk to the kids? And when I went and spoke to the kids, all the adults looked at me like deer in the headlights. I said, what happened? Because I was a different guy than the real Reuben they're used to, okay? So I go to the school. It went really well. Principal, you know, he says, man, you got a gift. You need to do this for a living. Uh, you're better than the people we pay. And I said, well, you get paid for show and tell? And he said, no, it's a speaking profession, man. Don't you know anything? And apparently I didn't. But I was a popular salesman. <laughs> And he was so in my face about it, I, I, I thought, you know, I was having fun out there. You know, just telling my story. Maybe I can inspire some people to really go for it. I quit my job three days later. I figured if I can sell a copier, I can sell a Reuben too. And I just started calling all the schools in Houston. The, the principal, the president of the PTA, the, the counselor, follow up with faxes, emails, massive action, right? You, you know, you throw enough mud on the wall, someone's going to stick, right? You can always clean up the mess later. And so that's what I did. I got booked. And then... Uh, so Olympics are in February, March, April, May, I'm living the dream. I got my own business. Oh my gosh, this is great. Well, I forgot that June, July, and August schools are out. I'm going to be broke, right? <laughs> Three months behind in our house payment, $50,000 in credit card debt from the, for, from the Olympics, uh, that close to losing the house, shot our credit. We were on food stamps wow. by August. Okay. And wow. that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I tell everybody to find a coach or a mentor. And I'm not even taking my own advice. I need to find a speaker. I know how to tell stories, but I don't know how to build a business. I need a coach, you know? And so I need, I need the Isaiah of speakers, right? To teach me the ropes, right? <laughs> and so I found a guy. And the first thing he said when we met, he said, man, I don't care if you're a 10-time Olympian unless you write a book. No one's going to take you seriously because an author is considered the authority of his subject. He wrote the book on it. And I told him, I can't write a book. I made C's in English. And he says, you got a great story. You write it down. We give it to some, some PhD, A students that know grammar, and they'll fix it. Okay, they clean it up for you. And I said, wow, I didn't think about that. He goes, yeah, it's called editing. So shut up and sit down, right? <laughs> and so I did. And it became a bestseller. I mean, that book's been translated to like 10 different languages. Crazy. Open up doors all over the world. But when I was finishing it up, I would go to Barnes & Nobles to see what the other books look like. And I realized they got it. You got to have some testimonials. And so I went to all my bookcases at home, and I made a list of 100 top guys, Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, you know, Les Brown, uh, Stephen Covey, the, all the classics, right? What's my dream list of people to write something nice for my book? And I started calling them all. I went to every website, and I called them all. And you never get the guy. You always get the secretary. So after a while, I switched my, 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 uh, my pitch, right, to the secretary, to the, to the executive director. When I call uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, the girl, she must, must have been her first week, probably her last week because what she did. <laughs> she said, well, Jack's right here, here. And she hands him the phone. And he gets on the phone, Jack Canfield, right? I mean, this guy's like mega. And so uh, <laughs> he gets on the phone and kind of serious like he says, you got five minutes. Well, we talked for 90 minutes. We became friends. He says, I'm writing this book called The Success Principles. And, man, I'd love to have you. And Anyways, he put me in three, three uh, chapters. He... Um, uh, he had me, he still may, uh, I was on his PowerPoint. I mean, I get all these gigs because somebody hurt me at, at Jack's, you know, programs, right? 
And so then around that time, Zig Ziglar came to Houston, right? I'd seen him before, but he came to the, uh, to, to the big stadium where the Rockets used to play, right? It's where, where Joel Osteen's church is right now. And they were having a Get Motivated seminar. And so I went and I, I was looking for the promoter and I found him, right? And I gave him a, a CD because my coach, thank God I listened to my coach. He said, hey, record everything you do. You never know when you're gonna be good and when you actually have a good audience and knows when to laugh. And so I had it, right? <laughs> and so I gave it to the guy, I said, look, bring me in to speak. I got a great story, I'll give your people hope and whatever, right? Well, the next week I had a gig in Tampa, right? And that's where these guys are based. I took the Olympic torch, I went over there and I cold called. They didn't even know I was coming, okay? I didn't want to warn them. And so I went in there and said, hey, is Peter here? Peter, hello? And they said, no, he's not here. But he was, but they lied, right? And so I talked to this girl, right? And her name was Hannah. And I had actually met her up at that big stadium. He says, oh, man, that's really great. Yeah, I'll tell Peter about you. Uh, you know, just, you know, I think we ought to bring somebody like you. We need more sports people. I followed up once a month with Hannah for 18 months and then they started booking me and I got to share the stage in huge arenas three five thousand people uh, with with Zig Ziglar and Rudy Giuliani and all these greats and you know because I did that that's that's amazing so this, yeah. this is just like just like in you know in networking and trying to to build relationships we reach out to so many people and you know we get stories in our private group about people saying I'm trying I'm trying no one's responding and it's just so nice to see another example of success where you, you know, you keep trying and eventually you're going to get some breaks and you can make, you know, one interaction, build one relationship can open up so many doors. So yeah, this is really, you know, really, really you know? That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't watch too much TV. I'm too busy, you know, trying to get to the Olympics. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, uh, there's a screenplay getting, getting, that's been written up. Right. And, and it's, you know, we're trying to, it's moving forward. Right. Great. And it'll probably be, you know, hopefully you'll see me in the movies one of these years and hopefully it's a good movie. Right. Hopefully I mess it up. But somebody said, you know who we ought to get to play you that Mark guy, Mark, uh, the guy that played the plays the Hulk. Right. And, and, in these movies. Uh, right. And he showed me a picture. He says, he even looks like you. I said, I've never even heard of this guy. Right. But I went online. Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. Ruffalo. That's right. That's right. And so I went to, to uh, YouTube and there was an interview of him. He had six, over 600 auditions before he got his first part. Wow. What if he didn't quit on 599? Amazing. And that's a great note uh, to end on here, Ruben. Thank you for going above and beyond with us and really just delivering tons of value. Uh, thank you, Mary, too, for that question. Uh, I'm excited for you. I know you got a, a talking, a speaking event today, too. So congratulations. And oh, thanks. Uh, thank you for everything. Please go to uh, Ruben's website. It's The Luge Man, right? The Luge Man. Yeah, you can also go to oldestolympian.com. That's a, <laughs> I'm going to be the oldest one ever in the Winter Olympics. I'll be 59, man. If you see a guy wow. from Argentina at the opening ceremonies with a walker, that's me. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Check out his book, too, The Courage to Succeed. Please thank Ruben in the chat box. Thank you so much, Ruben. Take care. We'll see you. Bye, with or without the walker, very, very soon. No, without the walker. I know, I know you'll be there. I know you'll be All right, so I'm going to bring our next guest on here. Uh, thank you for, for uh, waiting, Asia, to come on. How are you? I think we have you. Let me see if oh, I'm going to unmute you. There we go. I don't know how I'm going to follow that. <laughs> no, I, was thinking, 
was like, how do I even like comment? I just wanted to let him go. It was amazing. Just amazing. See why he's one of the world's top speakers. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to have Asia on with us again. Uh, Asia completed her MS in pathology at the University of Iowa and in, uh, obtained her MBA from the Darden Graduate School of Business, a top 10 uh, MBA program in the U.S. and worldwide. She has over 10 years of experience working in industry, Amgen, largest biotech in the world, Baxter, Baxalta Shire, now Takeda, where she is the director of new product planning. We're showing LinkedIn profiles today. So this is Asia, as you can see that she oh. used a picture too of in the background, uh, light going through trees. I'm not sure the symbolism there, but it helps to have that over the, uh, the, uh, the standard background. So Asia, thanks for being on with us. I appreciate it. I know that you don't have a ton of time. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions here relating to what Ruben talked about. You know, I want to dig in first to kind of the anxiety, the periods that you can think back to when you were moving from position to position in industry, when the business was changing. So we talked about two things today in the show me the data section, dispositional stress. So like the internal anxiety of stressful moments mm -hmm. and then the situational stress, like the external stuff happening, a merger acquisition, et cetera. So what did, what did those times feel like for you, you know, during the challenging moments? And then what sort of internal and external resources do you call upon uh, to get through them? Yeah. So first of all, I'll just say, you guys can't control everything as much as you might want to, right? You can only kind of control your own emotions and I guess the dispositional um, anxiety. Mm. And um, the way that I have through the course of my career handled some of that is realizing that actually the situational stress does impact my individual stress quite a bit. But if I have a good sense of kind of forecasting what those situations might be, that makes me feel less anxious about them. So again, can't control sort of what's happening outside, but if I can foresee or anticipate what's happening outside, then I start to create a plan and anticipate what those changes are, and I'm lining up my options all along the way. Mm -hmm. So to maybe bring that to kind of a real level would be, uh, my experience working at Baxalta when we were acquired by Shire, that was an extremely stressful point in my life. Now, I'll say that, you know, there were personal things involved in that, right? Like I have a six-year-old son, I'm completely responsible for him, right? And so when I think that there's going to be a big shift and change from a merger and acquisition, that has very real implications on my life, right? So there's a drive to understand what that change might be. So I had anticipated something like that coming because frankly, M&A happens all the time, but also just the position where we were as a company. And if you think that I waited until the deal was announced to start lining up my options, no, absolutely not. I could foresee it coming for a long time. I was already working with some of my mentors um, and talking with friends and colleagues about what my options would be so that when that did come through and did come to pass, there was, I didn't miss a beat on knowing what I could do next. Now that comes with a little bit of maturity and learning and knowledge and understanding what can happen in the marketplace and understanding how that impacts you individually. So it does take some time and some knowledge to kind of get to that point. It also takes, um, 
I guess quite a bit of confidence to know that even when something like that comes, you're going to be okay if you've been doing the work up front, right? So the fact that you guys are here in Cheeky Scientist is fantastic. That's a really big step in understanding um, how to get into industry. But once you're in industry, you got to continue to learn so that you can morph and kind of be flexible through all those changes. Yeah, and I think this ties in really well to what Ruben was saying. So a couple of things. Number one, you know, the anxiety hits. There's a change. Maybe you couldn't anticipate it. It's there. So I'll, let's dig in real quick to how do you, you – basically what you're talking about is getting out in front of it. Yep. And a big part of that is focusing on your locus of control. So yep. Walk through that a little bit. Like how long – and like you said, the confidence really just shortens that turnaround time. Like you go from, you're, you know, being floored, uncertainty will spinning – and then the more, you know, the more you've gone through this before, like Ruben said, the more practice, the more your brain's used to it when yeah. he was doing the parasailing and everything else, you get better and better and better at it. And then you right. can get out in front faster. So, but can you talk a little bit more practically about what that looks like? Is there a key question you tell yourself? Is there, how do you decide what your locus of control is? Yeah. Well, the, the really one of the only kind of low side of control, if that's the right word, is your relationships right, and how you interact with other people and ensuring that you have your tribe kind of around you to help you out when there is a period of extreme stress or a massive change. So I can control how I interact with people, my relationships, my mentor relationships in particular, mm. right, and making sure that I'm maintaining that over time. Um, so, you know, in massive kind of stressor points, I turn to my people, I turn to my circle, and I ask questions, and I start to kind of look outside of myself. The, the points when I start to feel most stressed are the times where I start looking outward most, because I know myself, and I know that if I allow myself to succumb to that stress, I can get very internally focused, and that's not helpful. That actually leads to more stress. You've got to look out for that help, and you've got to turn to some other people to get pers to gain perspective, right? Because you kind of lose perspective in 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 real moments of stress. Yeah, and, and so what Age is talking about again is what we went through with the show me the data section. Think of that third figure; it was difficult to unpack, but there was the dispositional stress, right? The the stress of the internal part, which he's talking about. But there's the external stress too, and the external stress can increase the internal stress, and vice versa. Yeah. What were the three things that helped people get over that ability? motivation, right? And emotional intelligence or just intelligence. So uh, turning to your ability, knowing that you've been through this before you can get through it. What are your key strengths? You know, Asia talked about relationships. That's a key strength. So knowing that you have those things to turn to, you've turned to them in the past, focusing on your ability, taking action. Motivation. You know, Asia mentioned the fact she has a kid. So she's motivated. You have to tap into your why. Why does this matter? Why are you going to get through this? Why are you going to be unstoppable in this moment? Ruben touched on that a lot too, but also your, your intelligence, whether it's emotional or just your pure intelligence, you have to know if you're watching this, you're an intelligent person. You're a P, you know, you, you have a, you have a PhD, you have a background in STEM. These are highly difficult concepts. You've reached the highest level in XYZ field. Know that, know that you can figure out a solution here. If anybody else has before, you can do it. And so I think if you can rely on those three things, it can help you. So in terms of your ability, Asia, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, what are some of the things that you look to in the past that give you confidence that you can handle things like this in the future, right? How does that process work for you? I could write a whole book about that. Um, and maybe I should someday. Um, 
a part of it comes from just experience and being in really stressful moments, frankly, my entire life, um, and realizing that uh, the current thing that I'm facing isn't all that bad, right? It's stressful, but it isn't all that bad. I'm going to survive it. And, and not only that, but if I can shift my framework a little bit, I might thrive in that opportunity, right? If I behave in a certain way, I might thrive. I might be seen as somebody who can thrive in that environment and be given different opportunities. So I, I, and maybe this is just my personal makeup a little bit. Like I, I don't really shy away from the stress, right? I don't shy away from the change. I take it head on. Um, but I'm able to do that because I've been through some of these things before and I know that I'm okay. And in fact, most of the time I've been a lot better off for, mm -hmm. for having gone through that experience. So if you can kind of get to that point, um, or at least recognize that the stress and the pain that you're feeling is actually like shaping you and, 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 in a way that you can be better later on having that perspective and holding on to that through it, um, does actually help. Um, I don't know, that's yeah. more no, that's perfect. than what you're looking for. No, it was actually, very, let me make it practical. So when you reach out to somebody, it might feel like you're going to die. You're not going to die. Okay. <laughs> Follow up. You're going to be fine. So actually, I mean, I mean, many, I've been on calls and things with you guys a lot of times. You may have actually seen, I have this like bracelet, um, and it, and it literally says 20 seconds on it. I got a bracelet that says 20 seconds on it because of some silly movie quote that actually resonated with me, which is you only need 20 seconds of insane courage or bravery. Just do it. Just take 20 seconds to do the thing that you're worried about and you will be pleased with the consequences. Right. And I've used that many times in my life, whether it's in business or personal use it for me, it means opening myself up to the opportunity, going for it. And what's the worst thing that can happen? Somebody says, no, who cares? Like go to someone else, or maybe you need to ask it a different way. So Sometimes I just, I, I literally have a physical reminder on my wrist I wear every single day to have just a tiny bit of courage and just do something about it. Just take the action and, and you'll start to gain momentum. Yeah. And a lot of people struggle with that. You know, it's that transition point and Ruben touched on that. It was just that beginning, making that initial call, dialing the number. Once it rings, they pick up and now you're in the conversation. Done. Took 20 seconds. Um, so and what's the worst? Like you might be a little embarrassed. Like nobody remembers that stuff. Like, you, you know, I always think of some things like sometimes when I'm in a city and I'm doing something silly or something new, I'm like, no one here knows me, right? They aren't going to remember that I was skipping down the street in Barcelona. Who cares, right? Like you can take that kind of approach to your business um, and, and to your job search. Like people aren't going to remember really the missteps, right? And, mm -hmm. and if they do, who cares? It, it doesn't have an impact to you. And uh, the very last thing I just want to touch on, I want to show this. Um, Asia is the, the program leader for Scientist MBA. I did mention at the beginning that enrollment is open for this advanced program. So a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in business, like gaining that confidence, we've been talking about all week how a lot of it comes down to understanding the language of business, the nomenclature, and understanding how to make decisions. So the, the more you increase your understanding of the business nomenclature, the more you increase your business acumen, your ability to make decisions, the better you can handle these stressful situations, right? The more you, the, the faster you can get out in front of it, like it said, like you said. So what are some of the things that you've just seen, you know, recently in some of the, the members of Scientist MBA in terms of 
something that would freak them out before they couldn't even handle like on an interview or a promotion comes up that now they're handling differently. Like what is the change that you see that this knowledge, right. And speaking it every day with other people who are also speaking this business concepts help them. So like you said, how does knowledge translate into confidence translates into better performance? Yeah. So that knowledge is going to help you forecast and predict. Like I said, it helps you build that plan. It also gives you the courage to actually speak up and ask a question that might not seem like a normal PhD question, right. To ask. So I think it's, it's the classic like knowledge is power. Once you have some of that knowledge, you're able to, to kind of put yourself into a different position. You're able to put yourself out there. You're able to think, think differently and ahead and predict future. And then of course, plan your course of action. Perfect. Asia, thank you for your time. This takes us to the end of another cheeky scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash mycheekyscientist to watch us live or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to cheekyscientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.